Thank you, Nikki. Good morning. Welcome, everybody. I am uh, got like this tickle in my throat, so I'm like trying to get rid of it before I start talking to you guys. Um, how's everybody doing? There's like so many people over there and so many people over there and then like people right in the middle. Um, I'm going to have to like do this a lot when I speak today. Uh, what's his name back there got mad at me? Not mad at me. He's like, you got to watch your hair. It like, you know, knocks against the microphone. So anyway, um, hey, by the way, uh, Matt and Cheyenne are, this is their last Sunday. They're moving. Sadly, they're moving away from us. Uh, we're going to pray that they move back. Um, but, you know, so we had a good time last last week together. And I think we're having a little thing with your community group today. So that'll, that'll be fun. So we, we want to send you guys off well and. So let me pray for that, and then we'll get into the sermon. Father, we thank you for the the short time that we've had with Matt and Cheyenne. We pray that you would bless that family, take them exactly where you want them to go, physically, uh, geographically, spiritually. uh, You would place them right in the place that they need to be. We pray for their future. We pray for... Uh, their whole family's future, their kids' future. We pray that you would bless them, protect them, uh, set up a hedge of protection around them, but please don't shelter them either. We pray that you would make them mature, uh, growing, powerful witnesses of your gospel in this world. So we pray all blessings on that family, and we thank you for them. And we ask that you would also speak today in this last sermon in this series uh, clearly to us that all things Jason would fall away and all things you would uh, shine forth. We pray that you would put up a hedge of protection around this church, physically around this property, Father God, that you would suck out anything that would keep us from hearing you, that you would order our thoughts for us, that you would speak loudly so that we can hear you, We pray against any spiritual element in this place that would seek to bring confusion or disruption to what you want to say. Just bless us with your presence. That's exactly what we want. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been, um, as I said, this is the last sermon in this series, uh, Overflow. We've been talking about desiring overflow and... um, you know, and, and, you know, overflowing with the Holy Spirit, overflowing with Jesus, overflowing with uh, uh, the Word of God, you know, having all that written on our hearts and stuff like that. And we've been centering our, our kind of revolving our, our study around this verse, Romans fifteen thirteen. may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. And that's our part, right? We put ourselves in the place of trusting the Lord, and the Lord does the work in us, uh, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there is power there, right? Sometimes we kind (laughs) of tend to forget that. But overflow, we've said, is a natural process uh, of being filled, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, and He uh, overflows from me to my family and friends. He overflows out into my community. He overflows uh, out into the world. It's not something that is necessarily forced or awkward for us. Uh, and we have to remember that what you're filled with kind of overflows to others, 
right? And uh, that that is something that we really need to think about at times. Sometimes the things that are filling me, I don't want to overflow to others, <laughs> you know. And, and and when you get like that, you have to really reevaluate where you are with Jesus, right? So we want to be filled with Jesus. We want to be filled with this word. We want to be filled with the spirit. And we want to uh, overflow that to people. We want to be purified. We want to be made holy, changed and transformed with, by the power of God. And last week we talked about being blessed to be a blessing which is a favorite phrase if you've not been here for a while or for a long while uh, you're going to hear that over and over going i'm going to drive that into your noggin blessed to be a blessing because that is really uh, the theme throughout all the scriptures and we we give god back in proportion what he's given us right um, jesus gave us his life and therefore i lay my down mind down in like response which brings us to the question of uh, ownership, right? Who owns me, right? Who, who, do I own me? Am I in charge of me, right? Am I, it, it, you know, who owns my stuff? Who owns my talents, my abilities, my car, my bank account, my funds, my money, right? My kids, my life, everything about me. Who owns me? And I'll say it really clearly, Scripture teaches very clearly that we and all we are and all we have, everything belongs to God. Say that twice. We, all that we are and all that we have, it all belongs to God. Leviticus 25, 55, it says about this about the people of God. It says, for the Israelites, the Israelites belong to me as servants. Belong to me as servants. There, there's no like ancient different meaning of the Hebrew text in there. It means the Israelites belong to me as servants. That's what it means, right? There's no like, you know, magic, you know, whatever tinkering with the word you can do. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, right? Listen to that language. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, in speaking about the work and the person of Jesus, it says, you are worthy, you, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God. Again, there's no Greek mental gymnastics we can do with the word. That's what it means. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our god and they will reign on earth first corinthians 6 19 through 20 it teaches you are not your own you were bought with a price or at a price romans 6 18 it speaks of our allegiance says you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We've switched our allegiance between things. We didn't like get free just to go do whatever we want. That's not what freedom in Christ means. That that language is a mirror of uh, image of the of Pharaoh and Israel's slavery in Egypt. If you remember that whole story, that God rescued Israel out of Egypt, and in turn their status as slaves transferred to God transferred to god we are literally slaves to jesus <clears throat> oh you are late Mm-mm. wow just wow shame shame no i'm just kidding 
But here's the kicker. <laughs> Don't you hate a church that has the door in the front of the room? Gosh. I really, I tried to make it at that end. I guarantee, but then you'd have to go to the bathroom in front of everybody. That would have been terrible. So I, we, we left it this way. I figure this it's the worst of two evils or the lesser of two evils. But here's the kicker, okay? So um, in the language of the fir- of first century, the Greco-Roman world of that time, the, uh, you know, a slave was considered to be living, a living tool of the master. Property in every sense of the word. Right? That's what it meant. So when the original readers came across this slavery language, you know, in the scriptures, there was no mistaking what that meant. Or when Paul was writing to them, or Paul was speaking to them, and they didn't know they were reading scripture yet, they knew what that meant. Whatever, and they would, understood, they would have understood at that time that whatever you yield yourself to becomes your master. Whatever you yield yourself to becomes your master. They would have understood the the word slave as bondservant, a person who willingly, and that's the key word, willingly submitted themselves as slave to another, to another person. Bondservant, right? Maybe they had debt that they needed to pay off and they couldn't do it. Maybe they came from a line of bond servants. Maybe that was sort of their lifestyle as a family, their history, and they just kind of kept going like that. I don't know. But we mustn't you know, confuse the idea of bond servant with slavery in American history. They were not the same. Slavery in American history was a wicked, oppressive system. We all know that. They were not willingly submitting themselves to come over here and, and be uh, a bond servant to somebody. That's not what they were doing. That was horrific. And, you know, and we have to admit that back then there were probably horrific practices going on as well. But in the basic idea of it, it was something, you know, different. You know, a bondservant in this context willingly submitted themselves to the master and enjoyed many benefits of the master's household, right? Bondservants were treated very well usually, and in certain cases, they even enjoyed an elevated status in society as a result of it. And that, if you think about it, is a fitting illustration of us in Jesus. Before Christ, I willingly submitted myself to sin as my master. But sin, I found out and I figured out somehow, I was woken up, I guess, that uh, sin is a tyrannical master. Right? It never delivers on its promises. It always depletes and kills. So I woke up somehow and I transferred my allegiance to Jesus. A master who willingly gave his life for me to buy my freedom. To buy my freedom, which drives me to willingly give him mine as well. And I find out that Jesus is a benevolent master. He's not tyrannical. He brings me freedom from bondage. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, isn't that a dichotomy? Isn't that a weird statement? It is for freedom that you've been set free. Well, of course. But I'm a slave. Isn't that funny? I'm free because I'm under the Lord's protection. I have all all the access to everything that the Lord has. And he's got everything. 
for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Do not leave the protection of your, your master. And go and submit yourself to something else that is just going to deplete you and kill you. Because as sin, as master, sin depletes us. But as master, Jesus builds us up. Dietrich, bon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. Not come and die like, <laughs> but, you know, death to self, death to that prideful, sinful self. Alive, becoming alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we are a new creation. This is the truth about you in Christ. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We passed from sin, from death in sin to, to life in Christ. That is a truth about us. And we saw that symbolized a couple of weeks ago when we baptized Catherine and uh, Megan. We have a new master. We have shifted allegiance. According to Scripture, we are the willing bondservants of Jesus. And in that bondservant-master relationship, we've got to acknowledge that the master owns it all. Everything. <clears throat> and I do mean everything. Yes, the bondservant enjoys the benefits of the master's belongings, his financial covering and all that. Yes, the bondservant is entrusted with certain items and monies and things like that to steward and to oversee for the sake of the master. But the master ultimately owns everything. And the, steward, the, the servant stewards the master's stuff. And that is reflected from the very beginning of the scriptures. In, when Adam and Eve were created and put in the Garden of Eden, God said, enjoy it all. I made it for you. Here it is. He owned it all. He made it. And he said, stay there and work this for me. Therefore, in speaking of filling and overflow, and this being our last sermon in this series, it brings us to a very important spiritual subject uh, one which is brought up more than any other time in Scripture, a subject of very spiritual nature, but also of a very practical nature, and that is money. <laughs> right? It's been said that fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. Uh, and you might think that I'm a fool standing here and preaching on, on finances and money, uh, but in, in, matter, in these, this matter, fear is unfounded. We need to talk about money in the church as a family members, right? Boldly and unapologetically. In full trust and assurance that 6 eight's not in the, the, uh, the business of misusing funds, right? Fear has sort of gestated in our, in our minds in these stories from these stories of those who have misused the kingdom of God or misused the funding of the kingdom of God for their own per- personal gain. We hear those stories out there. The church sometimes resides under a cloud of suspicion because of the actions of a few unscrupulous people like televangelists or whoever that have misused funds. That's that's true. But as bond servants of Christ, our finances do overflow to in service of our king and his kingdom. We're not televangelists scamming others into giving us their life inheritance so we can fly around in private jets. 
and build personal empires. I don't want that kind of responsibility anyway, by the way. That would be a nightmare. We don't speak the language of you and us or them and us or whatever that is. We speak the inclusive language of we, a a language of family, family of faith, sharing resources for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of our collective master. So if your hackles get raised, you know, at the mention of money in church, I ask you, please do me the favor, do yourself the favor and, and do the Lord the favor of gaining self-control over that emotion for the next few moments, set it aside and listen carefully because we can have, we can have a very candid conversation couched in trust and marked with, with good purpose, I think. And I think if we can do that, we'll find great opportunity to participate together in the kingdom of God through our desire to overflow our finances in service of our king. John Wimber, one of the founding members of the, our founding fathers or whatever you want to call them, of the vineyard, once wrote, 12 of Jesus' 38 parables had to do with money, as did one-sixth of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's now clear to me, pastors have a responsibility to preach and teach about money. For Christians can't grow to maturity until their hearts and minds are conformed to Scripture on their use of money. It's said that money is the one subject, as as I said before, which comes up in Scripture more often than any other. And so it must be an important topic for us to think about and talk about with far-reaching implications into our spiritual lives. How we interact with God and together as a church. Billy Graham once said, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight... It will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. Think about that. Just let that wash over you. And I think it's true. I think it's true. See, money promises everything that it can't deliver. Actually, it doesn't promise anything. It's, it's inanimate. <laughs> but we think it does. We think it promises everything that it can't really deliver. It can't save you. It can't give you purpose, you know, ultimate purpose in life. And, and it only can help with happiness to a certain extent. Have too little, you're, you're a nut job, right? Have too much, you're also a nut job. There's a sweet spot in the middle that you can kind of get some ha- you know, happiness with having enough. It helps, but it doesn't, it doesn't, fulfill you ultimately jesus urged us to have a proper outlook on money in matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21 he said do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and that's the real question, isn't it? Where's your heart? What does your heart serve? What's your, the treasure of your heart, so to speak? Because overflow originates in the heart. We're talking much more about money, aren't we? Just, I mean, this is one little aspect. 
what's in my heart overflows from within me. It comes out on you. So it's a question of ownership. What fills me is the same question as what owns me. What fills me is the same question of what owns me. Because Jesus said in reference to money in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Satan. No, he didn't say Satan. He said God and money. Isn't that interesting? You either, you're either consumed with the love of money or consumed with the concern of money. Right? You don't have to be greedy. You can just be worried. Right? Or you're consumed just with the love of God. Trusting as you trust in Him. Right? As you trust in Him. Money is not bad in, in and of itself. We know that, right? It's a, it's a, but it is a spiritual matter for us as Christians. You know, it's a tool of the kingdom which, which mustn't be allowed to become king itself in our lives. A spiritual tool in the hand of the steward, the bond servant, for the sake of the master's bidding. That's what it is. So it's not my job to specifically tell you exactly what to do with your money. Although I do have some sort of a role there, right? And we'll hear about that. Rather, I more, I, I more ha- it's more my job is to talk about how to regard money in light of Jesus, in light of our, this relationship with Christ, right? We speak of ownership to see money and wealth for what it really, truly is, which leads to wise choices with the resources that God has entrusted to us. When we're filled with Jesus, all this stuff, these choices naturally overflow from us, don't they? And the same goes for our material and financial resources. They're an overflow of gratitude towards Jesus to see the kingdom advanced among the nations, which is our greatest great calling, right? Our collective calling. Martin Luther said, every Christian needs two conversions, one for the soul and the other for his pocketbook, and I would agree with that. I've, I've, I've sat with people who have been Christians for years and never tithed, never gave. Or, you know, they got married and then their sudden spouse, their spouse who tithed before said they had to, to start tithing or, they, or they, they had a big, you know, windfall of money and they had to give money you know, their spouse said, oh, you got to, and, and they were like dumbfounded. They were nervous, but then they always come back and say, man, I was so blessed by that later. It's a constant sort of ongoing awakening for us as to what we are in relationship to God, right? What we are in relationship to God. In our early walk, you know, faith, we might look at this relationship very simplistically, right? You know, we, we compartmentalize our relationship with Jesus. He, Jesus saved me, which is placed in a box over here. But now I live my life on my own, making my own decisions on my terms, doing whatever I want until he comes back, you know, to, to get me, right? And that's in a box on the other side. We may not regard our relationship with Jesus to have any bearing on our finances, our sexual purity, where we live, who we get married to, or our career choices. Any of that stuff, those are all our choices. Yet as spiritual maturity sets in, as we are soaked 
and, and bake in the, the, the scriptures and bake in this, this filling of the Holy Spirit and all that kind of stuff, we realize that God owns all of me, everything I am and do and have is his. And the mature Christian willingly and gladly offers it all back up to him as a living sacrifice. As it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Because this is a family relationship, isn't it? This is a relationship of trust. This isn't the IRS, right? I don't trust what the government does with my money anymore. But I can trust the Lord. Right? little stab there, sorry. Had to get it in. But we, we freely... Uh, well, for God loves a cheerful giver, I should finish the verse. But we freely and cheerily give back to God what's already His. We are driven, our relationship, our giving to the Lord is driven by gratitude. Right? gratitude of what he's already entrusted to us what he's already given me what did jesus give me everything he bled out for me the longer we walk with jesus <clears throat> the more we learn verses like uh, luke fourteen thirty three come into focus in the same way those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples listen to that language do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples Uh, let me just be a little prophetic here this is the time for that coming right now you're going to feel that in the next decade the next 50 years more than you ever did before god is going to call you to give everything you have because we are slowly becoming the minority in our own country You are going to feel this deeply. And I want to prepare you for that. See, there's no in-between in the kingdom of God, is there? There's not. There's not. I might go down swinging. I might, you know, lose everything at, at, at this message. But this is the message of the gospel. And that's what I will do. I am either a slave to sin or I'm a slave to righteousness. Being filled with Jesus means that I'm all in which includes my finances, my sexuality, my career, my calling, my who I marry, the way I speak, everything. And I don't always do that well. I'm the first to admit it. And everybody that knows me knows that. <laughs> there are some very sober warnings about money in Scripture. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10 say, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, let me stop there and say, even if you got all the money you wanted in the world, that doesn't mean that you haven't been ruined and in destruction. You can still, you can fly jets and have all the, you know, like big mansions and everything, but you still may be in ruin and destruction in your soul, right? Don't, don't, define the world in in certain ways right for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs there are sobering commands in scripture as well In, in verse 17 it says command those who are rich in this present world 
not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Man, you get rich, it's easy to be arrogant. It is. It's really easy to be arrogant. It's not like I'm rich in in America, but I felt this in Indonesia. You know, I, I had more, and I felt it. You know, some of this may be difficult for some people to hear. I don't know. Maybe not you. I, I, I have no idea where your heart and your mind is at, at this point this morning. But we've got, we, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. We don't conform ourselves to the patterns of this world. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. Uh, but, we, you know, some teaching may fly in the face of what, we grew up with or what we were taught or or our culture tells us and all that kind of stuff but issues like money have to come under the authority of scripture under the authority of christ they do eventually they do at least god is patient with us that's for sure but understanding that we are bond servants of Christ, God owns everything, right? There's no compartmentalization in my, my Christian walk. I can't, there's no half in, half out, you know, like sort of wishy-washy faith and all that kind of garbage. God doesn't own a tenth of my finances. It's not just what I give on Sunday mornings that, that he has. It's all of his. All of his is his. He's graciously allowing me to use it and enjoy it. That's it. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. You know that story. The servants are giving the master's money to sort of steward while he's away, and and they all do different things with it. And It's a parable clearly teaching that we are to steward God's resources here and now. At least on one level it teaches that. Therefore, the idea that we possess anything is the actual deception. The question is, do we invest what's been entrusted to us to the benefit of our king, our master, or do we squander it, or do we merely sit on it and wait for his return? John Wesley gave some good advice. He said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Great advice, right? We shouldn't be ashamed of proper ambition to make a good living for our families. I think Scripture pushes us in that way, right? It pushes us in the way of diligence and hard work and integrity in the issue of accruing wealth and and becoming self-sufficient. There's no get-rich scheme in the Scriptures, that's for sure. I remember a friend calling me. This is decades ago, and we were sitting in Indonesia, and he was on another island, and he calls me up, and he goes, hey, I just got this email from a guy in Nigeria. He promised me if, if I would allow him to transfer money to my account, like a million dollars, he would give me a big percentage of it. That was like, that was new then. We all have gotten that email, like, I don't know how many times, right? But that was new back then, and he was like, wow, you think this is true? I'm like, dude, I mean, we know the scam, right? Scripture warns us, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. And it was. Very few win the lottery in life, and, and, and those who do are often ruined by it. Or they squander it right away, and they're back to square one. 
the way to accrue wealth, to secure wealth, is through diligence, through honesty, through integrity, through hard work. I won't tell you how much Tanner has in the bank, but I want to sing his praises. The boy works hard. Actually, all my kids have started out their early lives with a great deal of money in the bank. My wife had to pay off my $1,200 credit bill when, when I got married, so I, I'm, I'm a little sheepish. But my kids, man, they work hard. Amen. Hard. Proverbs 13.22 urges us to save well. A good man leaves an inheritance for its children's children. Not just his children, but his children's children. My dad has done that. I, he's a great model of that. Amen. Proverbs 6, 6 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Proverbs 21, 20. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Sometimes life doesn't afford us the opportunity to save enough or to save as much as we would like for our future or our families because we're at the whims of, you know, sort of volatile economies and, you know, businesses and governments and all kinds of stuff, you know. However, we are urged to plan wisely and to save as best we can. We know that from the scriptures. But Jesus also guards us against hoarding, doesn't he? In Luke 12, 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You know, don't get in the trap, too, of of thinking that, oh, well, Scripture just talks about, you know, making choices. But there are deeper issues that we really struggle with. And psychology and modern psychology has taught us. Make better choices. Keep it simple. That's a different sermon, though. But anyway. But he then, you remember, after he said that, he proceeds to tell the story of a man who's hoarding wealth. And, uh, but he dies in the midst of his obsession, right? In verse 21, he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Right? Scripture also urges us to give all that we can. John Wimber wrote it this way. He said, so where does God tell us first to invest his money in the kingdom of God, right? In tithes, in alms, which are sacrifices beyond our tithes, he's, he defines it. Formerly, I taught that I, a tithe wasn't necessarily 10%, but now I'm convinced from Scripture that it is at least that and that it should be given to the local church. This is somewhere where you might disagree with me, but I am very adamant on this point. I agree with him. Christians need to understand from the Bible their responsibility to give generously to God's work. God's work locally, your local church, where you're sitting right now, where your butt's planted, on that seat. This is your local church. And this is where our tithes should go. And anything beyond that is alms. That's what he's saying, right? And I would agree with him. God's people have have always been instructed to give at least a tenth percent of their income income leviticus twenty seven thirty a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord, and that tithe or that tenth went to support the temple, it went to support the priesthood, it went to to care for people and the overall work of the kingdom of God in that area and beyond. 
Jesus rebuked his leaders, you remember, for neglecting other things, but only keeping up with the tithe. Matthew 20, 23 says, 23, 23 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, notice he states very clearly that they are not to neglect the tithing, but that they should also overflow in the life of God in all ways. You know, many people say, the church is corrupt. I'm not going to give to the church. We're not corrupt. This is not corruption in here. It's not. You know, you may disagree with this or that, but there is leadership. There is structure. There's decisions being made in, in good ways. Just because we don't agree with every little thing doesn't mean we withhold from the Lord. That's not us. That's that's pride. That's pride. The local church is the avenue by which God is bringing the message of salvation to the world, starting right here in our own Jerusalem, right? Tithing is a spiritual issue practically tied to your local church. Now, not all of you might be considering this your local church. You might be here visiting, and, and I'm speaking about your local church then, right? John Wimber went as far as to say that that we give that tent to the local church, right? But for, before anything else, and anything else outside of that is considered to be alms, right? I remember when we first started 6-8, and I hadn't yet started passing the hat, passing the basket, right? And this young guy, he was still in college, um, really smart guy, you know, like... And he knew he was smart, you know. And he says, uh, man, it's so cool that you don't ask for money. That's awesome. That's awesome. And he, you know, explained that he thought churches only asked for money. They don't care. They only cared about money. And they were always asking for money. And then and that it was nice that a church lived by faith. And they, you know, they didn't ask for money ever. And I proceeded to burst his bubble. <laughs> I said, the only reason I haven't asked for money yet is because I don't have a bank account for the church set up yet. And I'm not going to sit on your money. You know, that's, you're not going to put it in my house. You know, it, it, that, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be responsible for that. But his comment was naive, wasn't it? It was young. It was naive. There's nothing wrong with being young and naive, but it was young and naive. Churches are organizations with bills to pay, rent to pay, or, or mortgages to pay, whatever. Like everything else, we operate on money, Right? They expend their resources on, on, on the communities that surround them in areas of poverty and mission. Uh, churches have salaries to, to pay and people to care for, all that kind of stuff. So comments such as his come from younger people typically who have never had any financial responsibility over any organization. By the time I came, became a pastor, I had already owned with my father two businesses. I knew... You know, I'm not a great money guy, but I knew kind of what it was about, you know. I had written checks to keep the doors open. We can't be afraid to talk about money. Can't be afraid of it. God calls us to speak unapologetically on this issue. At 6-8, we never want our ministry to be limited by a lack of funding. That would be horrific. It would be so tragic, wouldn't it? If we couldn't do something wonderful in this community or overseas where we have uh, things going on, you know, to, 
That would be crazy. In our history, we have paid rent and salaries and bought equipment, paid our necessarily bills, you know, ne- you know, all that stuff. We've helped out local families, both inside this church and outside of this church, who have been struggling. We've invested back into the local community, you know, which has you know, taken those relationships farther and deeper. We, it's won back the view of the church in this community at some large level. We support workers in the Middle East and North Africa and Southeast Asia we, for the care of people and the furtherance of the gospel among people groups of the world. You may not realize all that we're doing out there. And today we're having a lunch to talk about doing that even further, to expand our giving to uh, the Middle East. We've invested money in this building And other buildings that we've met in, you know, as a thank you to them, to show them that we care and we love for our neighbors and we appreciate them and all that stuff. We've trained leadership and we've refreshed them with meals and gifts, you know, when when it's deserved. We put on community parties and, and luncheons, which have increased relationships and opened doors for ministry. We paid for Bibles for prisoners just recently. $1,650 we spent on Bibles going out to the prisons in this local area, which has had a profound effect and led some people to the Lord. Just a week ago, I got this email from a prisoner which said, Hello, my name is Christopher. I was introduced to your prison fellowship inside journal, the Life Recovery Bible, it's a long name, by an old cellmate, and, and, and I ordered one. Thank you so much for sending me this Bible. I'm 52 years old and have never had a Bible of my own before. I am truly enjoying reading the gospel and learning all I can about God and the, God the Father and Jesus. I actually cried when I received it. I have asked God to forgive me of my sins and invited the Lord Jesus to enter my life and save me from all my sins and guide me from now on. I was just wanting to thank Prison Fellowship for helping me change my life and giving me the tools to save my soul God bless you. Amen. Amen to that, right? And I, and I yeah, I want that more. My brother, uh, this is my brother's wife, my sister-in-law, and his, his daughter. Um, my brother just posted this thing. You may have seen it. I, I think I posted it on my Facebook page. Maybe not on 6 I'm not sure. <clears throat> but the, this girl who was sort of living the, the atheistic, satanic lifestyle, and she gave her life to Christ. Go to my Facebook page and just read that right up. Oh, I, I want to see that happen more. I want to see more freedom come to people, right? Just a great little write-up. You know, we've welcomed new pe- people here with, with meals and fun events. We've developed and we've implemented sort of retreats and workshops and things like that, seeing lives change as a result. We want to keep doing those things and even more so, right? One of our dreams is that we have our own special physical footprint on the Eastern Main Line. You know, this is a crowded place. Um, Chuck knows this. Chuck does real estate in this area, you know, business uh, buildings and stuff like that. Um, This is a crowded place. It's not so easy to find a place to meet as a church. And, you know, once our lease is up on this place, who knows? You know, will they renew it or not? It's up to them, right? We could be out on our ear, So we need to be wise to save for the future and build our reserves so that we have money on that rainy day uh, to rent or buy a larger place or a different place. We have dreams. We have visions of other projects, but they remain dreams and, uh, you know, and visions unless we overflow in the area of finances and we make that happen. Unless we tithe, it doesn't happen, right? 
believe me, you guys are pretty good tithers. Amen. You should, you know, say, say, say good job to yourselves because even throughout the whole pandemic, our giving stayed the same or above. As far as I know, I haven't heard the, the latest. I mean, it's been a few months since I've gotten a real clear picture of it. But I, I do know that we've done really well over, over this whole last year. And I, that's amazing. I know churches that have dropped 50%, 70% sometimes in their tithing over this, this past year. It's crazy. That's a good thing. You know, we do seek good counsel from other churches and from Vineyard National Leadership. Two years ago, I sat with Bubba Justice. Love that name. Bubba Justice. What a great name. But the guy is like a financial whiz kid with the vineyard, you know, and he he just I sat throughout this whole conference right next to Bubba Justice, just picked his brain for two straight days about, you know, all this stuff. So my challenge to you today is simply this, is to think hard about ownership. Are you glorifying God in all ways? And I'm not just talking money, right? All you young people that aren't married yet, college age, whatever, are you, are you glorifying God in all ways? Well, you've know, got to think about that. You know, are you a good steward? Uh, you know, and I want to say that. I'm, I'm looking at my daughter and, these, and her friends over here. I want to say that because when God says don't do this, he says don't do this because it's going to kill you. It's going to hurt you. And when he says do this, he says do this because it brings you life. We think these other things give us life, but they don't. They deplete us. That guy that says he loves you right now, he will not love you in 10 years. I'm sorry. Unless he's walking with the Lord and he's going to put a ring on your finger, then, then he's, he's a good guy. <coughs> Caleb. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Caleb can take the joke. But do you, do you tithe to this church? That's a good question, isn't it? Do, do you tithe to your local church? Or if you have a local church that's not this one, do you tithe to it? You should be. You should be. You should be tithing as much as God puts on your heart to tithe. If you don't, I think God challenges you right now to start doing it. You, sh- you should start doing it. If you do, is it done cheerfully, right? It, and, and also, is it to the level that it really stretches you, that it challenges the other idols of your heart? It should. It should. My wife hates it. I've said it before. I, we give over 20% of our salary back to the church and it's important that you know that not because i'm bragging it's not that's not the reason the reason is you got to know that i do what i'm asking you to do right and it's not what i'm asking you to do it's what the lord asks us to do he wants us to pour it back out because we got things to do i am i am not sure where god is taking the american church i'm not sure what the next year or 10 years is going to look like but I am sure of what God calls us to you in Scripture, right? And we just need to keep marching forward, keep doing what God calls us to do. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. We, we thank you that we have freedom in you because we reside under your protection and we have access to all that you have, which is, it all, which is everything. And we ask that you would break our hearts 
for our master, for you. Break our hearts. Create in us, like David said, create in me a clean heart. Restore a right spirit in me. We pray that that would be our prayer, that we would give our all to you in every way, shape, and form. Uh, And that, that we would be prepared for anything that's coming down the road in the next 10 years or 50 years. We love you so much. You gave your life for us, and we want to give our life right back to you. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to ask, uh, one, of, one of our members is a leader of Young Life at Villanova. David, if you want to come on up. Um, and 